Welcome to the Bragg Creek Community Church Podcast. We are committed to be and to make followers of Jesus Christ an authentic community for the sake of His world. We hope that you may be equipped and encouraged wherever this teaching meets you in your discipleship journey. So for the past couple months, or in a couple weeks, I guess, this has been the conversational space that we've been inhabiting as a church. And right now, I think especially now that we're back together, in many ways when we were in the midst of the immediacy of, of, the, of the pandemic, when we were rushing, where we were fully online, there was this feeling of crisis management, this feeling like we're responding immediately and we're holding out until normal comes. And I think, especially as we're gathered together again, I think it's in these spaces that we feel the most weight of difference compared to what things were before. And our heart as a church in this time has been rather than hitting and feeling all of these feelings of disruption and the, the pain of, of distance from normalcy, and rather than just either putting our heads in the sand or... Um, pushing them to the side and just waiting and holding out until things get back to normal. Our heart as a church has been to press into that disruption, to press into those questions and to use this as an opportunity rather than being silent to all of this, um, have ears to listen and hearts open to receive what it is that God might be speaking. We've wanted to take advantage of this time to take stock of our life as individuals and as communities and to grow in this present moment and lay hold of the possibilities for resurrection, even now. So this morning, we've been talking about a number of things as a church, is, is how we grow and how we change in this new ordinary, how we live an extraordinary life as we embody the transformation of Jesus in the realm of our normal day-to-day. And I wanna turn this conversation specifically towards our experience of worship. Because I think if there's anything that we've felt challenged by and disrupted, especially as we come together, it's that worship just fundamentally looks different as a church um, and as churches broadly than it did before all this took place. And so I want to turn this conversation towards worship and one, hopefully to be able to take advantage of this moment, to be able to better understand this thing that we feel like we've lost, this thing called worship and hopefully from this be able to expand our practiced vocabulary for what it means to worship in a sing-less season, but also beyond this. Though again, we can grow and expand in our faith as opposed to being overcome by this. So first of all, what do you guys think of when you think of worship? And not like deep down inside, I mean like the immediate imagination that's captured there. Because I think this is mostly what my brain looks like on most uh, occasions, um, just normally, like a swirl of colors and words and, and stuff. But when I think about worship, my dominant imagination is captured by the uh, uh, campfire acoustic guitar guy at Bible Camp. So I'm, I'm picturing like specifically late 90s, early 2000s uh, worship songs and David Crowder's uh, chin beard before that became a real thing. Um, before he left the David Crowder band, and we all mourned if we were not born after the year 2000. So I picture like lights, I picture smoke, I picture Bethel and Hillsong, I picture these like very culturally specific experiences of worship. 
And that's like, regardless of how deep my theology might go or how deeply I might think about worship, those are the images, that's the imagination that's there at the surface. And so when we lose the capacity to do those normal things, those things associated with worship, those things like coming together, singing songs written by these large churches, and replicating that sound and experience, when we can't do that, when that's taken away, even if we would say that, like, yes, worship is bigger than that, we still feel a very huge loss because this is the imaginative space that worship often takes. And we can't do this thing. There's the question, like, have we worshipped for the past number of months? Like, that's, that's an experience that's right there on the surface for us, I think, is we've lost these things, these core structures, this these cultural, culturally specific means and methods of expressing worship, and losing that, we can feel disoriented, we can feel lost. So I think there's been two questions raised by this disruption for me, and what I'd like you guys to do, because we're bunched together in uh, chair groups, I want you guys to uh, talk and discuss among each other, one, what are we doing when we worship? And two, what do we have to do in order to have worshipped? So again, what are we doing when we worship? And what do we have to do in order to have worshipped? So that we do something and we say, this is the moment that we truly worship. So let you guys talk as your, your groups. If uh, two or three of you guys want to just throw out like a couple things really quickly that were a part of what you discussed. What do we have to, what are we doing when we worship? And what do we have to do in order to have worshiped? Kathy. Connect with God. What's another, another one? Praise. Praise. One more. Acknowledging our place before him. Yeah. What are we doing when we worship? We think in terms of we're connecting with God, we're, we're praising, we're acknowledging him, we're acknowledging our place before him. I think once we've connected to a particular form of worship, we've connected to a certain experience, a certain practice, in that familiarity we can be like, this is the thing that allows me to connect to God. This is the thing that allows me to praise him. This is the vehicle for me remembering my place. And when we lose that, that raises a whole host of questions because when we lose the thing of our form of worship, that we fill in the blanks, praise, um, acknowledge our place before God, connect with him, we can feel lost. And that question, what do we have to do in order to have worshiped, becomes really pertinent because we're like, is worship the same if we're not singing along? Is worship the same if it's not even musical? Is worship the same if it's over an online platform or a hybrid platform like we're, we're doing now? So I think this season raised a lot of those questions and it forces us in reevaluating what we're doing when we worship to push us into new spaces where we're trying to determine or figure out like, how can we do that thing in the midst of changing circumstances. And when we fixate, when we lock in on one particular form, we have to recognize that our world changes around us, our circumstances change around us, our culture changes around us. If we fixate on that form, oftentimes we can, we can lock into that and actually miss the entire goal of worship in the first place. And so these are, these are the questions that I think this time raises for us. I think like, as, I've, as I've been processing it, 
if we ask the question, what are we doing when we worship? I think it's helpful for us to push into our understanding of what worship is in the first place. And I think two things that are bound up within that is understanding that within the expression of worship, it involves both ritual and it involves a goal or a purpose. So we have ritual or practice that is pointing to or tied to this larger reality. And if we understand worship as just ritual, we miss out on the goal. And if we understand worship as just the goal, we don't understand how we then do that thing. We don't understand the practices that are available to us. So the ritual of worship is maybe songs or prayers or in a certain time period was sacrifice. If our dominant experience is Hillsong now, there was a time when the dominant experience was the smell of burning flesh. So our rituals are one thing over here, and this is the part and parcel of the practice of worship. So you have ritual, and then the goal of that ritual, our songs, our prayers, at a certain time, sacrifice, is cultivating our image-bearing identity. So humans, just intrinsic to who we are, is we are we're creatures of habit. And part of that is that we use habits, practices, and rituals to identify, to articulate, and to cultivate desire. And you think about the ritual of dating, because it is a ritual. It's like, you, if you, you have somebody that you're like, I'd really like to get to know this person, I want to like build a relationship, maybe there's the possibility of marrying this person in some distant future world, then you go and engage culturally through this ritual of dating, which is that you, you know, eat food together the first time quite awkwardly, and you try not to make any odd uh, bodily sounds while you're eating or look like a slop or chew with your mouth open. And so you have this, this awkward meal, and then maybe you go to a movie, and then the hope and expectation is that it gets less awkward over time and that you actually move from this weird ritual to real relationship. And you think about the way that we drive, it's enforced in us that like, like my driving instructor would repeat anytime that I was gonna change a lane, he would go, mir, mir, shoulder check, electrical single shoulder check, which was his version of Eastern European accent to say mir, mir, shoulder check, electrical single shoulder check. But doing that every single time, so as we're driving, like every couple of minutes, team, we are going to going down that road, okay, mir, mir, shoulder check, electrical single shoulder check, you did not mir, mir, shoulder check, I don't know, I don't know how you are doing this. So, it was this practice, every time I was like, okay, he's gonna yell at me in Eastern European, and so I'm going to do that and then statically move, and eventually you have to build up a habit. You have to build up a habit through this ritual to allow you to go beyond just this ritual of locked in, okay, mirror, mirror, shoulder check, electrical signal, shoulder check, so that Bogdan the Ken doesn't yell at me, to just thinking, oh, I wanna go this place, and so I'm gonna do this thing and not crash into anybody. You engage in the ritual in order to reach the goal. Or like scales in music, the ritual of scales is something that allows you and gives you the freedom to sing the song. And so as humans, we have practices, we have rituals that identify, that articulate, and cultivate that goal. So what are we doing when we worship? We are orienting ourselves within the goal of life beneath, with, and for God. Throughout the scriptures, there's these moments of encounter with God where people just see him and they fall on their faces in awe. And in that moment, they fully recognize, this is God, this is my creator, and this is me before him. And they bow before him. They fall down, inarticulate, speechless, fearing for their lives. That moment has recognition. They recognize who they are before him. 
And we can have those experiences in our practice of worship. But the practice of worship is many ways cultivating that same level of awareness without the theophany. We're putting ourselves in the way of God. The author James K.A. Smith says that worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something that we do. It's where God does something to us. Worship is at the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. When we engage in our practices of worship, say if you connect the rituals of prayer, songs, or at a time, sacrifice. These are practices that reorient our awareness. So as a practice, it moves us outward. We're focusing beyond ourselves. We're lifting our gaze beyond our own minds or the confines of our own words. We're being moved outwards to consider the possibility of the God who is beyond us. When we engage in the practices of worship, it's an act that renews our imaginations. We're being trained to see a world haunted by the presence of God. We're being trained to see a world in which God is at work, God is present, in which his kingdom has come. In the practices of worship, we are reinforcing and redefining our identity. We are saying, this is my God. This is my creator. My identity is found in relation to him. And the practice of worship, whichever form that takes, is cultivating that goal of knowing myself in relation to God. Worship as practices cultivate wonder and humility. It's a practice that, again, puts us in the way of God and opens up our imaginations to say, this is the kind of God that I stand before, the God who spoke the world into motion, the God who humbled himself and took on the pain of human scars. As we reorient ourselves within that story, within that memory, within that reality, we're being opened and cultivated towards wonder. And worship is a calibration towards the true, the good, and the beautiful. The practice, the ritual, is pointing and driving towards a definition of what is beautiful, what is to be pursued. Ritual is directed towards the goal of cultivating our image-bearing identity as those who are created by God, formed by him, and made to reflect him and his glory within the world. Worship is ritual as much as goal. It is ritual that points towards a goal. And this isn't an exhaustive explanation because the more that I study, the more that I look into worship, the more complex and mysterious and multifaceted that becomes. But I think this framing as worship as ritual, worship as goal, does help to provide a basic framework as we consider and wrestle with the complexity of the experience. So as an example of this, as ritual and goal, we can look at the worship of the nation of Israel. And in Exodus 19, verse 1 to 6, it says, On the third new moon after the Israelites had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They had journeyed from Rephidim, entered in the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountains, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell to the Israelites, 
You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all of the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. And within this idea, you have a goal. God is saying, this is who you are. You are the saved. You are the delivered. You've been called out of slavery into freedom. You bear my name, my identity among the nations. You reflect my glory in the way that you do justice and righteous and mercy as you follow my ways. And so in that In that way, we can't look at the worship that Israel engaged in as disconnected from that goal. This is an empty, meaningless ritual that they're doing for their own sake. But God is saying, I'm giving you this form, this practice, this ritual to reinforce, to point you towards that goal of your identity. So in the rituals, you had the act of sacrifices, the morning, evening, guilt, peace, thanksgiving, and atonement. And the goal of these things is facilitating or symbolizing the covenant communion. When you took, and again, this is part of the understanding of the ancient world, we're not familiar with the experience of sacrifice. We're familiar with, you know, cooking and roasting meat. We're We're not familiar with the weight of what that meant. Sacrifice, when you brought something before a deity in the ancient world, this was a vicarious offering of the self. So when you took the best of your flock, when you took your choicest lamb or your, or your, your best bull, your best ram, you were, bringing to, you were saying, this is something that's valuable to me. This is something that's close to me. This is something that's precious to me. And I'm identifying myself with that thing that I'm offering. But also I am articulating What kind of a person, what kind of a life lives and enters into communion with God? Part of the understanding of the ancient world was that when you sacrifice an animal and the smoke rose up because there's this understanding that the gods lived in the heavens and humans lived below, you had this, they called it the act of ascension. That's why when we translate burnt offerings in the Old Testament, it's the offering of ascent. So when you would burn your offering, the smoke would rise up, and the understanding in the ancient world was that there is this ascension to the realm of the gods. And this isn't just a practice that they were saying, this is the way that I appease God because he likes the smell of roasted meat. There's an articulation of who it is that enters into communion with God. So the psalmist in Psalm 24, verse 3 to 6 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who will stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart, who do not lift up their souls to what is false, who do not swear deceitfully, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from the God of their salvation. Such is the company of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So if your dominant practice of worship or one of those main experiences is sacrifice, you're bringing the best of what you have. You're bringing something pure and spotless. And you're saying, if this is my vicarious ascent, my vicarious communion, you're saying it's an act that is also training you, the offerer, to say this is the kind of person who enters into communion with God. And in that identification, you have this recognition that that is not me. And so you have alongside these offerings that say, this is, who, this is who enters into communion with God. You have the offerings, like the offering of atonement, that facilitates the actual capacity for communion. And so sacrifice, 
becomes a means of facilitating or symbolizing that covenant communion. It's not something that God needs in and of himself. It's a ritual with a goal. You have the songs and the prayers as another example. And in these, we can see one of the earliest forms of instituted worship in Israel is in the reign of King David. And the first song that's written involves memory of what God has done, involves an imagination to his glory, and it's an expression of covenant relationship. The songs, they articulate the God of the covenant. They express love, devotion. They also express fear and confusion. The songs are acts of memory, imagination, and expression of covenant relationship. There's also the rituals of the Sabbath or the festivals. And these were points in time that were considered sacred time. And as a nation, when you celebrated, for example, Passover, when the Israelites celebrated Passover, this ritual isn't just meaningless, a meaningless holiday. They're saying, we are actively remembering who we are. We're actively remembering where we came from. We are the people who are saved, delivered, and called out by God. It's an acting origin. When they engaged in the, the, the festival of first fruits, they're saying, our abundance, what has been given to me is ultimately from God. And it's a fixed point of time where they remember, where they stand within the provision of God and give back thanksgiving. These festivals, the Sabbath, they were orienting the community towards who they are, who they were created to be and called to be. They enacted origin. They were a ritual with a goal. And again, these aren't rituals that God needed for his own sake. And this is a radical departure from the world that was around Israel. A world where you would offer sacrifices to deities to get favor from them or to feed them. And because you fed the gods and they would give you, uh, give you what you wanted. Instead, for example, in Psalm 50, verse 12 to 15, God says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. The world and all that is in it is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Pay your vows to the Most High. Call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Or in Micah 6, verse 6 to 8, the prophet says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with rivers of rams and 10,000 rivers of oils? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? The rituals of ancient Israel, the gift of worship within the law that God gives to his people, isn't something that God needs. It's a ritual that's given for their own sake, for their own good as a means of, again, cultivating their imagination, to reorient them in their identity, to train them in who they were created to be. This joining together of ritual and goal is also found when we look at the early church. 
And so you had these various practices, even though you had this understanding that within the church, the full expression of the temple is made manifest, that as the church participates in life with Jesus, there's this expanded horizon of possibility. No longer do we gather within the temple to offer sacrifices, but we ourselves are the temple, the presence of God, and we offer the sacrifice of good works. We offer the sacrifice of our lives laid down. And still you had rituals that were a part of the community. So you had the ritual of baptism. And in this, you're participating, actively participating in the death, the resurrection, and anointing of Jesus. It's not that in the act of baptism, they're like, if we just baptize everybody, all of a sudden everyone's transformed and changed. It was a symbol, it was a practice, it was a ritual that you could say and you could point back to, I have been crucified with Christ. I was buried with him. I've been risen with him, and I carry his priestly anointing. It was a practice, a ritual, with a goal that was cultivating this realization of identity. You have songs that are present within the early church, and they reflect this cultivation of thanksgiving, of memory of what God had done. You had the ritual of, you have the ritual of the Eucharistic meal, the Lord's Supper or communion. And again, this isn't a moment where you offer this ritual and all of a sudden the reality of Jesus' crucifixion becomes real to the people who are present. But it's a ritual that proclaims the death of Jesus until his return. And it stood as a tangible act of oneness for the new covenant community, purchased and made alive through his body and blood. It was a ritual with a goal that said, regardless of ethnicity, gender, or socioeconomic class, we are participants all together in the body of Christ, in the covenant of his blood. And this, as a ritual that pointed towards a goal, is reflected when Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, he rebukes the Corinthians who the rich would gather together earlier and they would gorge out on their food and their wine that they had brought. And then the poor would show up and they weren't able to bring this. And all of a sudden, all of the rich people are drunk and the poor people go away hungry. And this ritual isn't just saying, I'm going to give an incantation for my own forgiveness. It's a cultivating symbol that says, this is who we are. We are one. And Paul's like, what the heck are you guys doing? Like, you do not have homes to eat or drink in. Do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So in the same way that in ancient Israel, you have this ritual that's for the goal of forming a people who are marked by the name of God, who live and embody that reality in justice and mercy and compassion. The same is true for the rituals in the early church. They're rituals with the goal of cultivating their identity as those saved, delivered, called out, and made imitators of Jesus Christ. And when the ritual is disconnected from that goal, it becomes meaningless and destructive. They were meant to participate in the ritual and say, this calls out and this challenges my reality. So in the Corinthian church, it's like, we have this reality of socioeconomic divide between the rich and the poor, and participating in a symbol is meant for me to say as I engage in that, no, this person who is below me in my socioeconomic standing is my brother and sister, and I need to treat them as such. The ritual cultivates a goal. And again, these aren't for the well-being of the church. They're not practices that met any needs that God had. They cultivated the identity of the church as the renewed people of God, rescued and transformed into the new humanity. 
Similar to the way of Israel, true worship was still located in ordinary day-to-day commitment to love, compassion, justice, righteousness, and mercy. You can see that in Romans 12, verse 1, where Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Hebrews 13, verse 15 to 16 says, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of our lips that confess his name, and do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. In Colossians 3, verse 17, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There's a lot more we could say here, but what I want us to be able to do from this is be able to contextualize our thoughts about worship within the way that it has historically played out in ritual and goal. When we speak about worship, to do this meaningfully, we need to have both in view. Because whereas the goal of worship transcends time, place, language, and culture, The specifics of our rituals of worship don't. And we need to hold those rituals with an open hand through the reality of constant change, not as ends to themselves, but as gifts and tools that point us towards that greater reality. So why for us is singing such an important ritual of worship? Because we've been able to do in-person gatherings for the past month now, And even together in person, the most obvious sense of difference, again, is the way that worship is engaged in. And it goes to show how important the ritual of singing, because singing is still a ritual. Like, even if we have free form, like, we're not, you know, lighting incense, we're not burning sacrifices, we're not necessarily reciting things. Like, when we worship, we have a fixed pattern of words that we sing. We usually have four chords that we're playing from. And... It's a ritual, no less than anything else. Losing it and feeling that tension, because I've definitely felt that tension, worship without singing in the same way feels incredibly different and incredibly challenging. So why is this, why is this the ritual that's so important to us? I'm going to take a l- couple moments. We're going to, we're going to talk about that, and then... Um, I'd like to move towards how we can expand our habits of worship in this time. So first, to understand this ritual. Music as an art form has been a fixture in worshiping communities since our earliest records of history. And regardless of the culture or the context, it's an art that we participate in with our bodies, no less than our minds. And through this, music creates imaginative spaces that we're invited to inhabit and experience as vantage points for our being within the world. So an example of how this works. This is a non-worship song by John Foreman called Somebody's Baby. And again, regardless of the context that music is meant to inhabit, music invites us to see the world in a different space. And it does that by allowing us to experience it 
especially if you're, if you're playing it, you're involving your body. And when you sing along, you're engaging your body within that space. So there's a way that this works. She knows if you were homeless, she was hell you'd be drunk. Well, high trying to get there, begging for junk. When the people don't want you, they just throw you money for beer. Her name was November, she went by autumn or fall. It was seven long years since the autumn went off. Of her nightmares grew fingers, and all of her dreams grew a tear. But she's somebody's baby, somebody's baby girl. Oh, she's somebody's baby, somebody's baby girl. And she's somebody's baby still. So the invitation of the song is an invitation to a different way of seeing the faces of the marginalized, specifically the homeless in our community. And so participating in the world of the song is participating in the possible reality that it points to. And this is the same for our songs of worship. So if we took Reckless Love, for example, and the bridge, Shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. If we're, as we're practicing this. These aren't just words. This isn't just articulating theology set to music, although maybe that's a part of it. But the invitation when we're singing a song is we're participating in the identity and the reality and the imagination that it's constructing. For any of the youth that have been on the worship team as we've like practiced songs like that, I'll describe it like in the course, we wanna like build up the image of a mountain and so you're driving this, this sonic movement upwards. And that's not just because it's like, it sounds good. It's, it's so that when you're articulating those words, when you're saying, there's no shadow that he won't light up, there's no mountain he won't climb up coming after me. It's not just words that are thrown out. We're saying, I want there to be some kind of a participation within that reality. As we sing that, we're saying, this is my identity as the beloved, as the pursued by God. And as we look at those, as we look at one another, we're saying if we're joining in that reality together, that's the reality I see and I speak over the people who are sitting with me, who are gathering community around me. If you take another song, like Oh Praise the Name, you have the beginning of that song is articulating the narrative of redemption. 
articulating the narrative of Jesus' self-offering. And so at the beginning you have, cast my mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds. And as that continues, again, you're not just telling a story, you're painting a reality, a picture of reality, that when we sing together, we're inviting one another to participate and stand within. When you move into the chorus and it builds up into that loud proclamation of, oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forevermore, for endless days. we're painting a space that is big, that is cosmic, that is vast. We're opening up ourselves to the wonder of the mystery of God. We're opening ourselves up to the story of redemption that's beyond me. And we're doing that not just articulating something, saying this is good theology, this is a nice word. We're saying this is our imaginative space and when we join into that, we're entering and we're invited to see through those eyes. We're put in the way of experiencing it. And in that, it's not just a conjured reality. We're opening ourselves up to experiencing the reality of God. In opening our imagination, we're training our focus towards that end. So our songs are meaningful as they reorient us and open us to the imagination, to the reality of the kingdom of God. God doesn't need our songs for his own sake. God doesn't need songs once a week for his own affirmation, for his own entertainment, or as reminders to him of good theology. His theology is probably better anyways. And I'm assuming that the heavenly host isn't tied to the tight genre boundaries of Christian contemporary music. God doesn't need this. This isn't something that we do and God's like, whoa, thank you so much for this boost once a week. This is something I believe that God does to us. When we engage, when we participate in worship, we're opening ourselves up to his reality. And our songs are meaningful as they cultivate that reality. Congregational singing is a ritual and it has a goal of reminding us of who we are of participating in that shared reality of his redemption, of opening ourselves up to the imagination of the reality of his presence here with us. It's a ritual with a goal. And this is true of the whole of our Sunday morning experience, not only singing. It's a practice, it's reorientation, it's education. But church in and of itself, the Sunday thing at least, it's not the real thing. And it can't be the only thing that defines our life as a church. And losing our ritual, this beautiful, incredible gift of congregational singing, like as a musician, I desperately love music. 
And I desperately love the capacity to sing songs and join together with one voice. And as beautiful and as meaningful and as powerful as that can be, it's not the only thing. And if we lose it, it's not really the end of our world. It's a ritual that has a goal. It's not our goal. It's not the end point. Losing our ritual then requires the revitalization of its value as a means to an ordinary end that doesn't require the ritual to exist. As in ancient Israel and the early church, our rituals are practiced with the goal of Christian formation, a goal that is lived out in the realm of ordinary life with one another. True worship is the boring things of mercy and compassion love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And embracing this reality frees us, I think, from the tensions of needing this, the Sunday morning thing, to look and feel a certain way. This is a beautiful thing. It's a valuable thing. It's deeply meaningful but it's not the ultimate thing. And disrupting it doesn't negate the life that this thing is only ever meant to point towards, never to replace or exclusively to construct. So to reiterate our previous questions, what are we doing when we worship? Ultimately, what we're doing when we worship is we are orienting ourselves with the goal of life beneath, with, and for God. We're putting ourselves in the way of God in any unique way. We're saying that who we are is those made in his image and likeness. And when we worship, we are cultivating that reality by recognizing and are opening ourselves up to the wonder of God. And what do we have to do in order to have worshiped? Any practice that is informed and directed towards this end, any practice that has its goal and is shaped by this goal of life with, beneath, and for God. Any practice directed towards this end, whether that's modern hymns or prayer walks, we can draw from the historic practices of prayer, songs, reading of scripture. We can draw from the sacraments of baptism and communion, but these aren't exhaustive practices or static within a specific cultural form. We can't say that within Oh, praise the name by Hillsong. This is the sum total of what worship is. This gets at an expression of it, but it can't be the only thing. When we worship, we are orienting ourselves within the goal of life beneath, with, and for God. And we have worshiped through any practice informed by and directed towards this end. So what can we do in this time to expand our habits of worship. I don't think that this season requires that we trash congregational singing altogether. We can sing in smaller groups. We can mutter under our breath. We can sing outside of the Sunday thing. And we can use songs as guides for meditation. But that said, I think this season opens up an opportunity for us to become more intentional about the forms of worship that are available to us and to expand our practiced vocabulary 
of what worship can mean as not ends in and of themselves, the practices as ends, but as tools for the cultivation of the discipleship community far beyond a once a week experience. So a couple of things that have been helpful for me in this season that I wanted to share. New rituals for a singless season. One of them is congregational prayer, which we've been doing a lot more over the past number of months. And to reiterate the purpose of it, fixed prayer, these aren't incantations or passwords or things that we're just going through the motions of. Fixed prayers that we pray together can provide a vocabulary for us when we're wordless, when we don't know what to pray. They can train our imaginations beyond our immediate experience. They can move us beyond ourselves in participation of a shared reality. When we pray together with one voice, we're acknowledging we're not alone. We're acknowledging that my faith isn't in and of by myself. I'm part of a community. And when I pray words in time with the others around me, I'm saying this is our goal, this is our vision, this is who we are. We're cultivating a shared reality. A second practice is praying through psalms that don't belong to us, training our heart towards concern for the other. I started this practice that I had really lofty goals at the beginning of the year where I was like, I'm going to memorize every single psalm by the end of 2020. Um, so I'm on Psalm 7, and it's going great. Um, but one of the things that really struck me in going through this practice of not just reading psalms, but trying to inhabit them, like memorizing them and speaking them and, and praying them out loud in the tone that the psalm seems to suggest. As many times I do that, and the psalm just isn't something that I can say, this is my experience. Recently, in Psalm 7, um, as I was memorizing and in a way like performing it to myself, the words of that psalm are, Yahweh my God, in you I take refuge. Save me from those who pursue my soul and deliver me, lest they tear my soul like a lion and rend it to pieces with no one to deliver. Yahweh, like if, if I've done this, if there is iniquity on my hand, if I've repaid evil to him who is at peace with me or drawn out my foe without cause, let him pursue my soul and overtake it and trample my life into the dust, my glory into the ground. Arise, Yahweh, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the rage of my foes and awake. You've commanded judgment. If I'm honest, I can't, that's not my words to say. That's not my experience. My life isn't in peril. I can't take that psalm and say, this is my moment of uh, edification for me personally today, this jumping Bible verse that stands out. This is a reality that isn't mine. But in praying through those psalms and using that as a practice, what we're training ourselves to do is think and ask the question, if this psalm isn't for me, if this prayer isn't for me, if these words aren't for me, who is this for? And how, as I'm praying this, how, as I'm memorizing or even simply reading this out loud, how am I being cultivated towards an awareness for those for whom these words might actually belong? And how am I training myself, thinking beyond my individual experience, 
saying, how can I gain a concern for the other if this is God's concern that's reflected in these words? So the practice of whether or not you go the route of memorization, I think memorization is super helpful. Just don't set overly lofty goals for yourself. Praying the Psalms, memorizing them, expressing them out loud, trains us towards concern for the other because most of the Psalms aren't for us. Most of the Psalms don't address our immediate experience if we're really honest, and that's a good thing. It trains us towards concern for the other and opens up the question, how might God desire to conspire with me to respond to this? This is the same in the practice of prayer walking too. You're seeking to cultivate awareness for those that are around you. Another basic practice in the ordinary time could be simply the availability to serve as an intentional act of worship. Whether that's super, super practical, like helping within the house, whether that's addressing or coming to a neighbor and saying, is there something that I can be available to serve in? Not like something that we're like, I'm going to do this good thing, and then I get brownie points from God or tickets to heaven, but saying that if worship is an act of orientation where I'm saying, this is who I am, I'm cultivating an awareness of God, the act of intentionally serving one another as worship is something that I can say, I am made in the image of God who is love. I am made in the image of the God who is self-giving love, concern, and care. And so I can, in expressing a basic act of service, say, I can reiterate over myself, this is who I am. I follow the God who came not to, ser or to be served, but to serve. I can cultivate that awareness. But also, it's an act where you're speaking over the other person. You are made in the image and likeness of God. You, in and of yourself, you have value. And the least that I can do in affirming and expressing that value is giving the intention of availability as best as possible to serve and respond. Something very practical, like the ordinary day-to-day -day acts of service, can be opportunities for us to express worship, using them as intentions to open up to remind ourselves who we are in relation to God and the identity of those before us. Another practice could be just the act of eating and drinking. In our house, our, our table blessing, probably like yours, is pretty fixed and short. So our table blessing is, we bless you, God, our Father, who gives life in abundance and faithfully provides for every need. And like every table blessing, we can use it like an incantation or a password, like the thing that we have to rip out before we're allowed to eat, lest our food become a curse to us. It's easy to grip through and go through the motions. But as I've been thinking about it and trying to be more intentional as I engage in it, it's come to be a frame for me to look at the very act of eating and drinking as an act of worship. Again, if worship is a practice of orientation where we're saying, this is who God is, and I'm orienting my life with, beneath, and for Him. Something like the phrase, we bless you, God, our Father, who gives life in abundance, opens me up to the needless wonder of life, the needless gift of flavor. When you're eating food, there's something that's really pointless about really good flavor. 
Like, it's not something that, like, if we were purely thinking about just nourishment, being able to get what we need in order to survive, like, God just hasn't designed the world that way. He's designed intentionally needless things, like the way that the sunrise shines through our window in the morning with a golden light. There's the needlessness of flavor of marinated pork tenderloin and honey-glazed broccoli. It's nice. These things are needless. And rather than taking that experience and being like, okay, I'm just eating, I give my password before I'm allowed to eat, and then I go for it, this can be an act of wonder and worship where I'm saying, God, like, thank you for the wonder and the beauty of something as simple as flavor. That act of eating and drinking opens me up to the wonder of God, the God who needlessly created this abundance. And if that's in just the physical realm, opens up the needless abundance of his grace for me to participate in. Simply eating and simply drinking opens me up, has the capacity to open us up to that reality of wonder in flavor, in shared experience with another person. Or at the close of that prayer is, and I think most of our prayers capture this similar idea is, We bless you, God, our Father, who gives life in abundance and who faithfully provides for every need. And when we eat, we can be thinking specifically to God, thank you for the provision that we were able to pay rent this month and we were able to have food on our plate. But also the act of eating opens us up to say, what else has God given and provided for me? Eating can be a tangible act of thanksgiving. We're saying not just in this food, but God, I thank you for all that you have so generously provided. Eating and drinking can be worship no less than a song. We're participating with our bodies and opening ourselves up to the reality of the God who is given life in abundance. And a final practice, and this isn't an exhaustive list, but can be the act of communion within a home. So a new ritual that Lindsay and I have adopted is the practice of communion after the resolution of an argument or a fight. And we did it first at 3 a.m. on our bed with sourdough and orange juice because we didn't have wine or grape juice. But in that practice, we retold the narrative of the gospel and shared a symbol of our mutual forgiveness, the grounds of our unity in the covenant of Jesus. And so for you, whether it's after a fight or just as a grounding practice within your family or with a close group of friends, communion is probably one of the most complete acts of worship that we can engage in. It's a sensory experience of eating and drinking, but it roots us in the fundamental symbols of our faith. It orients us within a history that's far bigger than us, practically opens us up to the affirmation of our shared identity as members of the body of Christ, a reality that exceeds our differences and division. Again, this isn't an exhaustive list, but I think this season gives us a chance to explore new avenues to pursue the goal of worship when our dominant symbols are taken away. As we wrestle with new ways of being as a church, new ways of gathering, and new ways of worshiping, our grounding will need to come from a clarified vision of who we are and the kingdom that we have been called to participate in. James K.A. Smith writes that formative Christian worship 
paints a picture of the beauty of the Lord, a vision of the shalom that he desires for all of creation in a way that captures our imagination. The biblical vision of shalom, a world where the lamb is our light, where swords are beaten into plowshares, where abundance is enjoyed by all, where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation sing the same song of praise, where justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, is the vision that should be enacted by Christian worship. And so the invitation that this season extends to us is an opportunity for us to look beyond our familiar forms of worship as the thing that we need to fight or take back or return to normal. And instead, it's an invitation to embrace the greater vision that our rituals serve to articulate, a vision that begins with and is grown from the transformation of everyday life, of ordinary life, in an opening towards the life of God. I'm going to pray, and then we'll wrap up with the practice of communion together. Jesus, we want to thank you for the tension of this time. We want to thank you for the capacity to see our reality with new eyes. The capacity to ask questions of what is familiar. To look at the things that we place value upon. And God, in the tension of this time, in the difference, in the disruption, I pray that you would cultivate within us a vision of the reality that you call us into, the reality of life with you that transcends our rituals, that transcends our spaces of worship, that transcends our habits. And as we wrestle with determining the practices of a new normal, I pray that we would be opened, that we would be grounded and anchored within a deepened vision of your kingdom, of your resurrection life, in defiance of the darkness. God, we thank you that you are our God, that you are with us, that you are at work within us, that you are not finished with us yet, that there is a greater reality that you desire us to step into, and there is more of your life that we have the opportunity to participate in. We love you, God. We thank you and we praise you. We desire that our lives beyond our rituals would be a song of worship and praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen.